Good morning. My name is Adam. If I didn't say it before, I don't actually remember if I did or not. Um, but if I didn't, my name's Adam. Thank you. Good morning, John. This is uh, going to be one of them mornings, I think. It's uh, one where uh, I feel like uh, I don't want to blame it on the weather, but it might be the weather. We just, it's just like a little bit of like, like more, I'll, I'll call it stoic. Um, we, we feel more stoic today, but maybe we'll, we'll try to uh, light a fire under that and get a little bit of energy here. Um, but I'm a pretty uh, understated kind of a guy, so that may not work out as, as we get through the day. But anyway, um, one of the things that I would just, I, I want to start with this morning and, and this is just uh, thinking about like the, the songs that we just sang and, and thinking about the words that we sang as worship, but also as, as a prayer to the Lord. As I was sitting and, and, and going back and forth between singing and praying, uh, one of the things that, that came across my mind was the, the reality that, that we are together as the church, we are custodians of a legacy of sacrifice but also we are custodians of a legacy of victory. And we get into a little bit of trouble when we separate the two. Victory without sacrifice isn't victory that comes from the unfolding plan of God. But sometimes also we just see the sacrifice and we forget about the victory. And so what we have to do and what my hope is this morning is that as we leave here, we are armed with the, the knowledge and the memory that we are custodians of a legacy of sacrifice, but that sacrifice leads to the reality of victory. And with that, there's not much that can stop us. So let's get into our time together this morning. This winter, we are examining together the gospel of Mark as a guide to focus in on the radical ways that Jesus defied social and cultural norms and religious traditions during his ministry that led to his arrest, his torture, his execution, and his resurrection. Now last week we kicked off this series by unpacking defiance as a term, but defiance as it relates to scripture, and also the potentially unsettling reality that, that who or what we defy will also demonstrate who and what we serve. Last week, we, we used the events of Good Friday and the call for Barabbas to demonstrate the difference between defiance and support of the plan of men and defiance as a result of the calling of God to, to participate in his plan. The Gospel of Mark, I think, is especially effective in presenting Jesus defying culture and religion, but also his submission to the consequences of that defiance. Of all four of the Gospels, Mark is the most explicit with the suffering of Jesus. This, I think, is an important dichotomy. The Gospel that presents defiance is also the Gospel that presents suffering. A point can be made from this that suffering is the outcome of defiance led by the example of Jesus because it does not support defiance for the plan of men. Matthew 18 and Mark 8 both record Jesus telling his disciples that, uh, that I mean, an imperative 
to follow him is to put down their own ways, to put down their selfish ways, to pick up the cross and follow the path that Jesus made. Jesus also makes this clear in John 15. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of that world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. If they'd listened to me, they would listen to you. As we witness, as we witness the examples of defiance that flow from the missional work of Jesus, we will always see him defy for another, never for himself. His defiance was not about comfort. His defiance was not about safety. It wasn't about secular prosperity. It wasn't about ambition, pride, or worldly security. It wasn't about getting his way. Jesus did not defy to get his way. It was always done in submission to the plan of the Father and for the life of others. A legacy of sacrifice. These are metrics that we can use also to contrast our own behavior against social and cultural norms. We can use this as a metric with our own behavior in relationship to civil authorities and religious traditions. We can look at our defiance and measure it against the example of Jesus or an example of men that would call for Barabbas on Good Friday. Now, I think the Gospel of Mark as a whole, this entire, this entire Gospel, this entire piece of Scripture is an act of defiance in and of itself. Now, we know that each, the, each of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, these narratives of the life and the teachings of Jesus, they are unique in terms of author and audience. But they also share this common purpose of, of presenting the good news of God's plan to reconcile the world through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Mark certainly has that intent. The author of Mark, a man oddly named Mark, captured the teachings that were recounted by the apostle Peter. He learned from the apostle Peter, but he also accompanied other apostles on missionary journeys. He accompanied Barnabas and Paul on their journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts. Some scholars believe, based on Acts 12, that, that Mark's mother, Mary, uh, either lived in or owned the house where the, good supper was or where the last supper was celebrated. I, I present all of this to say that Mark was not far from the, uh, uh, the very life and words and teachings and outcomes of Jesus. Mark was in, in engaged, engrossed, enveloped by all of these things. He was there. Mark was there, and Mark wrote the gospel that bears his name. He wrote this gospel to a Roman audience as a belligerent act of defiance. 
Now, being unique works. The Gospels all have secondary or sometimes even tertiary purposes that are reflected in the author, the audience, and sometimes the occasion of their writing. There's more stuff that we can extrapolate, more stuff that we can pull from, from the, the meaning when we look at audience, author, and occasion. Mark was written in Rome during the first century AD. Now, likely, in my opinion, it was written somewhere in between 67 and 72 AD. Some people would argue for an earlier writing to the book of Mark, but I tend towards a post-temple destruction authorship because we know a couple of things. One, from, from secular historians, we know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. When we get to Mark 13, several weeks down the road, we're going to see Jesus prophesy about that event. And the way that Mark presents that prophecy, I think, makes it clear that, that this probably was written after the temple was destroyed, and it, it just it makes more sense to my thinking. And so I think that this book was written after the, the temple was destroyed in uh, AD 70. Now, why is that significant? Why is it important? That's important because the purpose of Mark had, the, the, the purpose he had for pinning this gospel being an act of defiance to the Roman government. In 69 AD, the emperor Vespasian had come to power in Rome and, and was making some pretty interesting claims. The emperor Vespasian uh, came and, and even referred to himself as the prince of peace. He presented himself as a savior as not only the bringer of peace, but the stability of peace. He also claimed to be a miraculous healer, and he also claimed to be a humble servant, which could maybe be a, a humble brag. It's kind of interesting. If you are bragging about being a humble servant, you might be lying to yourself, or at least exposing yourself. But this is what Vespasian did. He presented all of this to the people in Rome. To make sure that no one missed the imagery, to make sure that no one missed exactly what he was saying, Vespasian called himself the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He called himself the Messiah. So imagine from an historical perspective, the temple's destroyed, the Roman emperor is making all these claims, the church in Rome is, is new and, and, and trying to learn how to live in, in a new reality. And they're hearing claims that Vespasian was making, that he is the Messiah, that he is Jesus come again. These claims create a backdrop for why Mark wrote the gospel, but also for how he wrote the gospel. Right off the bat, right off the bat, the very first words that Mark writes act of defiance, a defiance that a first century Roman reader would not miss, an explicit challenge to the, to the false claims of the, of the Roman emperor in the very first line of the gospel. Here it is. Mark 1, 1 says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how he begins with the backdrop of, of the, this, uh, this historical issue that Vespasian is making. That line might for us in our time seem like an ordinary introduction, but Mark's time 
in his time and place. This is a challenge to the claims of the emperor. This is defiance of the highest order. Even the words that he chose, the Greek word for good news, euangelion, was closely associated with the words of the Roman emperors. When the Roman emperors spoke, anything that they spoke was good news. And so to call this the good news, defiance. Also the title, son of God. This is the way that the emperors would describe themselves. Mark uses the first line of the gospel that he pens to proclaim defiantly that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the true son of God. All others are pretenders. And it gets better from there. Now, one thing to keep in mind here as we roll through this series, one, one point that we'll come back to time and again is part of defiance is the relationship to authority that the defier has. This makes the defiance of Jesus even more interesting because the authority of Jesus is, is one of the first uh, that, that, that points it's one of the first points that Mark makes in the gospel is this authority of Jesus, the authority that Jesus utilizes to defy the social and cultural norms, the civil authorities, and religious traditions. In Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus exercise his authority over sickness, over spirits, and over those that would follow and serve him. So with all of that as, as a backdrop of where we're going We'll start today in Mark 1, verse 16. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me. I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebdi's sons, James and John in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebdi in the boat with the hired men. So we have Simon and Andrew standing on the shore, casting their nets so they could feed their families. James and John, maybe a little bit better off, evidenced by their family owning a boat, but fishermen nonetheless, working to feed their families, and Jesus calls them. And again, we have an act of defiance. Calling fishermen is an act of defiance against social and cultural norms. Author and political activist George Bernard Shaw once said, I've never had any feeling for the working classes except a desire to abolish them and replace them with sensible people. That didn't tweak anybody? Really? 
I appreciate the chuckle. I feel like that, I mean, the, this is, I, 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 I mean, this is kind of a, a little bit shocking to me. I've never had any feeling for the working classes except a desire to abolish them and replace them with sensible people. John, uh, John Glasworthy wrote the novel The Patrician. This is a social critique that was written in 1911. He has one of his characters saying this of ordinary people. The mob, how I loathe it. I hate its mean stupidity. I hate the sound of its voice and the look on its face. It's so ugly, so little. Jesus did not call the aristocracy. He didn't call the learned. He didn't call the wealthy. I like Abraham Lincoln's quote on this issue. Lincoln said, God must love common people. He made so many of them. The act of defiance that we see here in calling his followers from the working class, from the ordinary, has one purpose. The purpose of this defiance is this. We ought to see ourselves not of what we are, but of what Jesus can make us. Calling the ordinary is purposeful because it's about what Jesus can make us, not what we can build ourselves. Now, I'm not looking to foment like class warfare. It isn't that, that, that the wealthy or the self-made are, are excluded from the work of Christ. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is it takes the knowledge that nothing we can achieve or build apart from him will lead to eternal salvation. Nothing we create, nothing we earn, nothing we build leads to eternal salvation. We are nothing without him. And so Jesus defies social customs. He defies cultural norms. He doesn't go to the, to the religious leaders. He doesn't go to the, the well-educated, the ones that built themselves up out of nothing and created something on their own. He goes to the ordinary. And in this going to the ordinary, we see an act of defiance. The other thing that we can pull from this act of defiance and calling the ordinary people is we have to, to pay attention to what he's calling them to. That e also is a call of defiance to social norms. He's not calling them to gain their own wealth. He's not calling them to replace the ones that have wealth. He's not calling for them even to be able to, to, sacri to, to, to earn for their families. He says, follow me and be a fisher of men. Follow me to a legacy of sacrifice. Follow me to victory. This is not about becoming. It's about following. That act of defiance in that culture actually works in our culture as well. This isn't about creating something this isn't about getting our way. It's not about 
uh, even the way that we talk to kids about being, uh, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? This isn't about ambition. It's about joining a legacy of sacrifice. The work of the body of Christ will be accomplished by the refining works of God, which means us. Those submitted to discipleship, the process that it will make us look and act like Jesus. That is an act of defiance in and of itself. And if we're wondering, well, how does Jesus act? What is this example? Continuing in Mark, now in verse 21. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. Quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet. Come out of the man. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what just happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. So first, we see his words amaze, and then his actions amaze. Actions that defied the kingdom of the earth, actions that, de- that defied the kingdom of the air, actions that demonstrated the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. This man, if we think about this man for a moment as, as a human being, This man, possessed by an evil spirit, he is tormented. Imagine this nightmare of evil permeating everything about you. Evil permeating through his body, controlling his body, controlling his speech, everything about him. This man is captive. This man came to a place of authority, wanting healing from the wisdom of the religious leaders. But they didn't have the authority to free him. The words of the demon spoken through this man show that what we're we're seeing here is a power encounter. The demon had authority over this man's life. Now, we don't know what led to this transfer of authority. We don't know why the demon has authority over his life. But we see the predominant authority of Jesus with a simple command. Shut up, leave him alone. The man is rescued. He's rescued by the rescuer that holds all authority in his hands with just those words. Authority over evil, 
was evidence to the crowd that God's rule had come in Jesus. It's even evidence for us today in reading it. This authority is, though, an act of love. And the fact that it's an act of love is what makes it an act of power. This is an offensive act against evil, to be sure. But the defiance was done in order to set the man free. Jesus defied in order to set this man free. Defiance to deliver a helpless person by the love of God. Defiance, exerting power, but the power being love. Jesus defeats this enemy. He defeats his enemy with compassion. This is a place where we can, pa- we can pause and examine modern-day influencers. How do modern-day influencers cause, uh, call us to exert power? Even Christian in- influencers, folks we might see on, on TV, folks that we see in social media, do they call us to defiance in the same way that Jesus just demonstrated defiance? Against his enemy, Jesus uses compassion Is there a call of defiance that we hear from from influence around us that's about self-protection rather than compassionate rescue? If there is, we must acknowledge that one of those calls supports the example of Christ and the other is another Example of a call for Barabbas. Is it authority over those that are called to serve? Is it exercising authority as an act of love for compassionate rescue? What we see or have seen from Jesus so far is authority over those called to serve, authority over the spiritual realm, and now, as we continue in Mark chapter 1, authority over sickness. Verse 29. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, She prepared a meal for them. This healing is like the deliverance we just saw, but it also has some pretty distinct differences. First, both of these things occur on the Sabbath, which is a clear defiance of religious authority. The first, though, that deliverance, this was done in public. It was a demonstration of power, and there was witnesses to that demonstration of power. This miracle is a private miracle. This healing is private, and it demonstrates that these miracles are not for grandiose acclamation, but for compassionate salvation. Jesus did not require an audience to exert his power. His power was exerted in order to love someone that was suffering. Now, also, these healings, they don't require a religious exercise. It didn't require an incantation 
It didn't require going through some motions. If we think about the deliverance, all it took was Jesus to say, shut up, leave him alone. The healing simply took Jesus reaching out his hand and taking her hand in his own. There was no religion to that. It was relationship. It was looking across and seeing somebody suffering and saying, I'm going to join you in that. The healing was complete and restorative. The fever broke, she got out of bed, and she went to work. Authority exercised over sickness. And this is what happens next. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. The word is getting out in this town. People hear of this new authority. They hear this new authority and they flock to it. People needing healing, needing deliverance. They seek out the one that defies social and cultural norms. They seek out the one that defies religious tradition. They seek out the one that exerts his power through compassionate rescue. In 11 weeks or so-ish, kind of, we'll see. Maybe in 11 weeks, we will end this series and we're gonna see in that ending, the last instructions that Jesus had for his followers. Mark 16, 15 through 18, Jesus tells us this. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. This is a commissioning. It's a commissioning of authority for us to act in the name of Jesus, to do the stuff that Jesus did with his authority. The same authority that we just saw in defiance, in Mark 1, is the authority that Jesus places us as custodians of. With the example of Jesus, to do the stuff that Jesus did, with the authority that he grants us, we look back and we see that he did not exert power in order to gain power. He did not defy in order to gain, he defied in order to save. In this first chapter of Mark, we see defiance against the Roman government. We see defiance against Jewish religious leaders and religious traditions. We see defiance over evil and the spiritual realm. We see defiance over social and cultural norms. All of this is an example for the church. All of this is an example of what we are called to. All of this is an example of the legacy that we are custodians of. 
Defiance, not to gain, but to save. Defiance to ease another's suffering, even though it might lead to suffering of our own. N.T. Wright comments on this chapter like this. When the church learns again how to speak and act with the same authority, we will find the saving power of God unleashed once more and a heightened opposition from the forces of darkness. When we know our authority in Jesus, when we defy in his name for his purposes, the word will get out. People will hear of this granted authority. People will hear of this authority and they will flock to it. Needing healing and deliverance, they will seek out the one that defies social and cultural norms. They'll seek out the one that defies religious tradition. They will seek out the one that exerts power through compassionate rescue. If you remember from last week, defiance in the name of violence, in the name of safety, security, defiance for leverage, defiance as a result of anger or fear, defiance that gains power, is defiance that calls for the release of Barabbas over the release of Jesus. But the legacy of Jesus, the legacy granted to us, this legacy is the sacrificial defiance that leads to compassionate rescue. This is defiance in the name of Jesus and it's the calling of the church. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that the gifts of your spirit would be released. I pray that we would be made aware of your presence with us. But Father, also would you now make aware the presence within us. Father, would we feel you Would we know the work that you're doing inside each of us? Would you help us to come aware of it? And Father, as we become aware of the work you're doing in us, would you help us to be aware of the work you're doing in others? Would you help us to see those that are calling out for compassionate rescue? And Father, as we see those calling out for compassionate rescue, would you help us to put down anything we would want for ourselves? Would you help us to put down a need for safety and security? Would you help us to put down ambition and pride? Would you help us to pick up the cross and follow with your example defiance in your name? Father, would you make us